After feeding 5,000 people with five barley loaves and two small fish, Christ told his disciples to collect all that remained, that none be lost. Having fed the hungry multitude with physical bread, Christ also fed them the bread of life. His words were to be remembered, contemplated and shared, and no fragment of truth was to be left behind. I'm Laura. And I'm Bill, Laura's father. And this is Gathered Fragments. In the previous episode, we saw that God does not predestine anyone to a life of rebellion and eternal damnation. Yet from this conclusion rises another age-old question. Why would a loving God permit pain and suffering? Yeah, thank you, Laura. This is possibly the most asked question or objection even to Christianity and to the Bible. People see so much suffering in the world. They question why God allows it to happen. Mm, And I think specifically, not just suffering that is the result of our own poor decisions, but when innocents have to suffer. Especially, yes. Along with that, there's also the assumption that it's as if God never does anything, which incidentally is a deistic belief. A deist is one who believes in God, but that he put this world in motion and just left it to its end, to its own ends. However, I'm sure of it. There are countless Christians who can testify, and I I can testify as well, to how many times God has intervened in our life. The fact that we are even alive today. How many times he's protected people from certain death or a serious accident. God does intervene and he does protect and prevent. Mm, And we only see a small percentage of that as well. Certainly, yeah. Like we don't know how many times God has saved us that we are unaware of. Absolutely. So we need to keep that in mind as we discuss this question. God does help save and protect life at every moment. He never sleeps nor slumbers. However, in this fallen world and sinful world, suffering and pain are a part of this world that God had never ordained should be in that way. Let me give an example. Let's say a man finishes work and stops at a bar on the way home, has a drink before going home and maybe has a few too many even. And so he's over the limit, and then he gets in his car to drive home, and unfortunately, because his reactions, etc., are not quite right, he has an accident, which is his fault, and in the process, he kills an innocent family, parents and children, a terrible tragedy. One could say, why did not God intervene? And as I said earlier, many times God does, but let's say the Lord did intervene in that from happening. Let's say he intervened every time someone is about to act irresponsibly and cause the suffering and death or, or pain of someone else. What would you learn from this experience? Would that not actually encourage or, or just promote more irresponsibility? In other words, if there's no cause to affect, if you act irresponsibly, make wrong choices and do things wrong. And there's never a consequence. There's never a consequence. <laughs> People are going to become more rebellious, more irresponsible. I mean, we watch our children, of course, and we protect them when we see danger. But they're often going to learn from cause to effect. They're going to learn from, as mummy told them not to do something, and they do it, and they, they fall or they have an accident. They learn, quickly learn from these things. It's, it's part of life. And so there's times when God intervenes, and there's times when he has to allow human beings the responsibility of their actions. In fact, that's why we see commercials, advertising, 
about smoking and drinking, etc., and its effects, they show some vivid portrayals of the harm it causes, both internally and externally toward others, in order that people can learn from that and, and hopefully make better decisions. An awareness of the consequence is integral. Yeah. And this whole terrible human history that we, we are part of is that human beings can learn what it means to disobey God and his commandments and the impact that has and the suffering and woe that it brings. We'll see that a little more later, but let me put it to you like this as well. Let's say that that night that that man did that and caused the death of, of and of course, not just that immediate family, but think of the relatives and, and, and others, you know, the, the suffering that would cause for the rest of their lives. It's terrible. All the consequences of the wrong decision. And what was really the cause? It wasn't God. And that same night, there would have been thousands of others who made the same decision he made. There are thousands right now driving who are over the limit, who are driving irresponsibly, and yet they make it home. I'm not excusing it by one moment, but all I'm saying is there are those who seem to get away with it for a time, but sooner or later there will be a consequence. But what about those who acted responsibly? The cause of that tragedy was the man's disobedience, or what the Bible calls sin. That was the cause. He acted selfishly. He had no regard for others. It had nothing to do with God. Now, we're discussing why that's God permit that, so of course this is another principle, but what I'm, what I'm getting at is the cause of suffering and abuse and pain is sin or selfishness, as the Bible calls it. It's not God. Another question, which I don't know if we'll have time to answer today, but why did God then allow sin to happen at all? Is the, then the next question yeah, someone might ask. But certainly, yes. But this is why I meant by saying that that same night, thousands of others would have drove home responsibly and made correct choices and there was no danger to themselves or to others. I mean, accidents can happen, yes, but by and large, that illustration is just to, sh- to, to show that a, one who acts selfishly and makes wrong decisions to please themselves can impact tragically upon others. Basically, and even if it's not a life-threatening yeah. uh, consequence, all our selfish acts, they do have a bearing on Certainly. others, those around us. Yeah, a person who becomes addicted, whether it's to drugs or alcohol or whatever it may be, it may be a married man with children or could be the wife, their downward spiral that's going to you know, ruin them financially and physically in so many ways and maybe cost them their job, of course, etc. It's going to impact upon their children, upon their families, upon their friends. The sin causes suffering to mm. others, to other innocents, you know. Yeah, so it's really no surprise that God throughout the Bible is instructing us to refrain from sin. to mm, For our good and for the good of others. Yeah. And you see, God wants to put an end to suffering, and he will. One day he will. We'll see that. However, for God to put an end to suffering, he has to put an end to sin. It's so important to understand this principle. And then we'll see why a loving God has to permit sin and suffering to continue mm. as much as it's totally against his, his nature and character. Yeah, absolutely. Because in Eden, before there was sin, there was no suffering. And then in heaven, what afterwards, when there will again be no sin, there will be no suffering. So you can't ignore that connection. Yeah. Another assumption that maybe is considered by people who ask why does a loving God permit suffering? I mean, people can ask that genuinely. That's fine. Of course, that's a good thing to ask. Leads you on a, on a quest. On a, on a quest, yes. But the one who asks it in the sense of defiance against God and against his word, and so it's like a, an excuse or a reason why they can't accept God 
And that too can be genuine. I, who am I to judge? But, but as I said earlier, there's the assumption that God never does anything, which is deistic theology. And there's also the assumption that God doesn't care. As if the suffering of human woe in this world does not impact upon God in heaven. Mm. The Bible tells us how angels weep. Angels are emotional beings, let alone the Father and the Son. As much as these things impact upon us and we're fallen human beings, how much more does God have to endure the suffering of little children and of all people and, and the injustice in this world and for so long? And so let's keep that in mind as well. You know, Jesus said, See that you despise not these little ones. For I say unto you that in heaven their angels behold the face of my Father. The Lord is, is unveiling the invisible world to us there and telling us that our children, little ones, innocent ones, even those who suffer and through no fault of their own, they have a guardian angel who beholds the face of his Father in heaven. What he means by that is they don't just go to heaven, they go there to report to God, the Father, the welfare of that little one and what it's going through and, and the irresponsibility possibly of the parent or others or guardians. So mm. God is mindful of these things very much so. And more. Well, God would know regardless, though. Absolutely. God doesn't need the angels to, to report to him, but it's interesting mm. that he has that. Yeah, well, obviously they have an assignment. Yeah. You know, they have, he says they're angels. They have an assignment. And this is what I meant earlier when I said that he cannot intervene all the time, but often does. And he suffers more than anyone with the injustice in, in this world. Mm. A good passage that brings that out is in James chapter 5. And it won't continue forever. James 5, verse 4 to 6. Behold, the hire of the labourers who have reaped down your fields, which is of you kept back by fraud, crieth, and the cries of them which have reaped are entered into the ears of the Lord of Sabbath. Ye have lived in pleasure on the earth, and been wanton. Ye have nourished your hearts as in a day of slaughter. Ye have condemned and killed the just and he doth not resist you. So James here is speaking about the poor, those who have been oppressed and wrongly taken advantage of by the wealthy. They've worked hard, they haven't been paid correctly, they've had to suffer while the rich live in pleasure. And he's saying this for us to understand that God is mindful. God is not ignorant of this. He says that their cries have entered into the ears of the Lord of the Sabbath, and in other words, the Lord of the armies, that's what that means. And they condemned and killed the just, and he does not resist you. So all the injustice, etc., that's been happening for so long. God is aware of it all, and he records it all. And he suffers more than anyone because of it. But he goes on to say, Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. And that's when God will put an end to all of this. And it talks about how God has long patience and is long-suffering toward us. So James gives us an insight there into how God is mindful of these things and one day will put an end to it. But for God to put an end to it, he has to put an end to sin. And for God to put an end to sin, what must he do? Destroy sinners. And so the reason he is so long-suffering and the reason he permits these evils to continue is because, let's say the Lord returned tomorrow, he will certainly put an end to sin and sinners and the righteous be taken to heaven. But if he's to do so tomorrow, how many thousands or millions out there who may accept Christ on the gospel next week or next year or next month or next day? How many more could have been saved that God just held off for a little bit longer? And so, you see, it's 
It's not a question of, is he loving, but is he too loving, that he just persists and has to suffer in order to save as many people as he possibly can. But ultimately, his, his very throne cries out for justice, and mercy and peace and justice have to meet. And mm. God, will, God will save the righteous and, and the wicked be destroyed by the brightness of his coming. And of course, that infinite wisdom of divinity would know when is the right time to return to earth and Absolutely. finally put an end to it. And you know what else, Laura, too? The irony is, again, I'm not judging anyone because I think it's nothing wrong with asking this question. As you said yourself, it leads you on a quest. And it's an honest and innocent question. In fact, it can be very well motivated from a good heart because he likes to see suffering. And therefore, they ask these things. But the irony is, often the skeptics or atheists, etc., who question why God does God allow this to continue, yet they themselves are part of the cause. Because as that illustration I gave of that drunk driver, it's our selfishness, it's our sins that cause suffering and pain, etc., to our loved ones and to, to others and to ourselves. And so when we break God's commandments, not only we dishonor him, but we're hurting our fellow man. The last six commandments about not coveting, not committing adultery, not bearing false witness, etc., not killing, all about how we relate to our fellow man. When we break them commandments, we hurt others. This is just a reality that I don't care if you believe in the Bible or not, we know this is the truth. And therefore, the very one who asked that question, why do they lie? Why do they live selfishly? At the mm. cost of others, why do they cause pain and suffering? And did they question why God does nothing about it? Or even in a simple way, why do they say something to someone that was an outgrowth of jealousy, Absolutely. which then hurts that other person? Certainly. Like it, it doesn't have to be adultery or murder. No, you know, we hurt people on a wrongly spoken word, yeah. etc. What I'm getting at is they want God to do something about the world's problems, and yet they are part of the world's problems but they don't want God to do something about their problems. And so God gets the blame. The reality is God wants to transform your life. He wants to change your life that you can be a, a blessing to others and a help to others. Mm. Instead, people want to live the way they want to live and they have the will to do so. But then they question God as to the injustice they see in the world and yet they may be dishonest in their own dealings with their fellow man. Maybe in small things, like you were just saying, I quoted some major things, but dishonesty can come down to just an exaggeration or a business deal which many would look upon as being totally normal and yet you're taking advantage of another. Yeah, that's right. This is right. all part of doing wrong toward our fellow brothers and sisters. We are part of the world's problems, but we don't want to acknowledge that Then ask why doesn't God do something about it all. A good example of this is the famed deist named Voltaire, the French writer. He was so angry with God that he once boasted that he said he was tired of hearing how 12 men established a Christian religion. And he said how he would prove that one man would be suffice to overthrow it. He also proclaimed that 100 years from today, he said this in 1776, he said, 100 years from today, the Bible would be a forgotten book. These were the claims that Voltaire made, that he would overthrow the Christian religion and the Bible would be forgotten. And today, which is some 244 years later, the most read book in the world, by nothing comes close, is the Bible. It has sold over 4 billion copies. 4 billion. The next book that comes 
second, I was going to say it comes close, but it doesn't come close, but it comes second, was a book written by Mao Zedong, who, which sold about 800 million copies. So you can see the popularity of the Bible, totally opposite to what Voltaire had said would take place. But what I was getting at was, with the example of Voltaire, is he was rightfully angry. He wrote often in, in a satirical form, particularly regarding the Catholic Church and the monarchy. But he pinpointed and attacked the injustices and corruptions in the monarchy, in the church, in the priesthood. And he was right. I want to make this point clear. He was very, very right. At a time when people were starving, people were per- perishing in poverty, and yet the church and, and the monarchy lived lavishly, like we saw in James 5. And so he rightly was incensed by that, and so it, in his writings attacked these things. And again, I want to stress, he was, he was right in doing so, but the problem was he attacked the Bible. Like I just said there, he said it would be a forgotten book. He said he would have a fraud of Christian religion. In doing so, he attacked it because he saw God being a deist, saying, being, believing that God created this world and then left it to its own end. He ultimately held God responsible. What I'm getting at with all this is that Voltaire's writings were primarily responsible for the French Revolution. He was a man who was incensed at the corruption. In, corruption and injustice in his country, in the world, in fact, that he wrote against it and inspired people to revolt against the monarchy, against the church. And, when, and what happened in its place? You have the French Revolution. And you have 10 years of what the world calls the, probably the worst period in Earth, on Earth's history. In a, in a modern nation of France, you have what's called the Reign of Terror, where injustice, cruelty, murder, robbery, etc., immorality, increased a hundredfold. It was the most terrible time you could possibly live on Earth in that country. People were losing their heads for nothing, for just a, a, just a wrong accusation. And then the very ones who would behead people ended up getting like Rospierre. He ended up even losing his head. It was just insanity. Why? Because they chose to throw out God and the Bible. And what did they have in its place? The reign of terror. A hundred times worse than the situation that was before. So although he was right in condemning those things, in throwing out God and his word, he made things infinitely worse. And we should be able to learn from these things in history. Hmm. Again, in Hosea chapter 4, there's a good example of this. We don't have to go there, but Hosea 4 talks about how there was murder and adultery and robbery and lying and blood touching blood everywhere in the land of Israel. And then the prophet tells you why, for there was no knowledge of God in the land. When you remove the knowledge of God in the land, that's what leads to It's a very knowledge of God and his word that strives with man to not go down that path, to love his neighbor, to do good. Yeah, that's that principle that suffering, all suffering is the result of sin. You're not going to overcome suffering by departing from God because that is your only possibility of refraining from sin. Absolutely. And, you know, we need to become intelligent also regarding, like you just said, regarding sin and and its cause. But also who's behind it? The deist theology is such a wrong teaching. We need to become aware that we're not alone in this world. There's a great controversy taking place. There's a war between supernatural beings taking place, Satan and his demons and God and Christ and their angels. When you're aware of that, a lot of these things become clearer to you. Why there's so much trouble in the world? Why there's so much suffering? And you're on one side or the other. And when someone harms you or does wrong to you, as, as much as you resent that, of course, and, and not 
you know, happy about it. When you see beyond the actual person and whatever action they took, and you can see who's behind these things, you can deal with things a lot better. For example, who was behind Voltaire's writings? Even though he may have meant well, who was behind it? It was the devil, of course. Satan knew what he was doing. He knew that reign of terror that would come. He was the one that wanted God to be removed from the people and the word of God. And so he corrupts the church, he corrupts the monarchy, inspires writers like Voltaire to rightly condemn them things, and then the people revolt and they end up destroying each other. And so instead of turning people away from God's word, the answer to these things is to turn them to his word. When a man turns to the Bible, he will not lie anymore. He will live honestly. He will not be unfaithful to his wife. He will love his children. He will love his neighbor. His life will be transformed for good. Even if he just reads the Gospels and Jesus' teachings and nothing else. Even if he reads one Gospel, it will transform his life. And so to take that away from people's hands is the work of Satan. It's not the work of Voltaire or Thomas Paine or any other infidel writer. We have to understand who's behind it and why. Because Satan knows the power of God's word. He knows the power it has to transform people's lives. He's been seeing it for 6,000 years. And he knows the difference it'll make in this world, it'll make in your home and in your life and ultimately save you for eternity. And so it's, I think it's very important always to understand almost everything we discuss in the light of the great controversy between God and Satan. Mm. And you have a clearer picture as to who's behind it and then therefore not be deceived by it. Yeah, I just thought of something that's interesting. There's this kind of conception that, and it can be you know, rooted in a good place, that you want to change the world, mm. you know, make the world a better place. better place. And it's really prominent, especially now. Mm. But the Bible is kind of the opposite because these people often will try to change the world but neglect their say, family life Absolutely. or individual life. Whereas the Bible is saying, you know, there is going to be sin till the end of time and it's going to get worse, worse. and worse. Yes. You take care of your life, your family's life, and you will have an influence in your immediate community, your sphere. Mm then you can reduce the suffering and Absolutely. you can enhance the blessing. Certainly. But you're not going to be able to change the world. No. You can change your life and your family's life and those around you and you can have an influence to others. But can you see how it's the flip side oh, of certainly. what's being spoken yeah, today? It's so important what you just said because when we recognize, like it says in Romans 6, 16, unto whom you yield yourself servants to obey, servants you are, whether of sin unto death or obedience unto righteousness. When we understand that principle, every one of us has a responsibility to help things in this world or make them worse because you're either yielding to God or to Satan. That's just a reality. And the woes and troubles in this world, you are part of them. If you're yielding to Satan, if you yield to God, who transforms your life to live honorably and honestly and to help others, you're trying to help the troubles in this world. And like you said, Laura, you're not going to change the world. The Bible is clear, the Bible prophecies are clear, this world will wax more and more evil. It's a great deception to think that this world will get better. It's getting worse, and we can see that in every, in every way. Mm. And the Lord's signs of the last days and Second Timothy 3 as well all tell us these things. And I mean, if you think about if there's one, if there was one person that could have changed the world and it did in a Christ. sense, right, it was Jesus. Yeah. But the Christians were still the minority. Certainly, you know, they and always were, will be. Yeah, and they were the ones that were persecuted and murdered Absolutely. and slaughtered. And so it'll be in the last days, yeah. martyred for their faith, certainly. So you cannot separate suffering from sin. They go together. You cannot separate the two. So when we stop sinning, 
when we stop transgressing God's law, which is which trans, sin is a transgression of God's law, and start keeping His law, we can eradicate sin from our lives, help things in our in our home, in our work, wherever we are, we can be a blessing to others. What price can you place upon witnessing to someone who gives their heart to the Lord, goes forward in the waters of baptism, and is eternally saved? Mm, even just one person. One person. What a, how can you measure that? You know, it's amazing. That's the responsibility we have in this world. And like I said before, if Jesus returned today, how many would be lost who could have been saved? And so he suffers, continues to have to endure the troubles in this world as long as, as possible in order to save as many as he can. Mm. The very question, why does a loving God permit suffering, should be, why do human beings permit suffering? Because that's the reality. We are the ones permitting suffering by continually rebelling against God's, God's law and how he wants us to live. And then we try to cast it upon God. Mm. And what you said just then about God waiting in mercy, he's not going to just choose some arbitrary day. We know from prophecy that things in the world and the powers that be are going to ramp up to a point where people have to make a decision for God or for the world. Absolutely. It's just going to climax to a point, you know, and we can talk more about prophecy later, but it's not going to be just an ordinary day that Jesus decides to randomly come. No. no There's going to no. be events like escalating and escalating to no. the, and the world is going to be informed as to whether they want yeah. to accept the Lord or not. Well, and yeah. everyone will make their decision and then God will come. Certainly. And that's exactly what Jesus says in Matthew 24 and verse And we believe. 14. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then the end shall come. And so it's not without, not without warning. And prior to that, the Lord articulates a lot of the signs at that time, like earthquakes and, and famines and, and pestilence, etc., mm. that will be taking place. But the gospel of this kingdom will be preached unto all the world for a witness. It's going to be a huge shaking. People are going to be Certainly. rocked, you know. Yeah. And even in all of that, as terrifying as it is, even in all that is the love of God revealed because in Isaiah 26 it says, For when thy judgments are in the world, then shall all the people of the earth learn righteousness. So God allows these things to take place even for the, like he says, nation rising against nation, war and famine, pestilence. It's these very things that sadly have to take place because of man's evil intentions. But in doing so, it turns some people to God, mm. turns many to God when thy judgments are in the world. Yeah, because the temporal selfish indulgences yeah, are you threatened. Know, yeah, no, yeah. well, they, they are so meaningless and pointless if you're yeah. about to lose your life exactly. in some natural disaster or something. Yeah. So your perspective comes into play when things mm. are going wrong. Yeah, I remember seeing time in September 11 when they said the churches in New York for a period of time were full because people were so terrified with, with the events. And they were turning to God, at least tempor temporarily anyway. So you can see how that can take place. And God uses that again for good. Mm. Like I was saying, so for God to end suffering, he wants to end suffering at the same time he wants to save you. And so this is the dilemma. And one day he will end suffering. And those who have made decisions for him will be saved. And those who have become impenitent and hardened will be lost. But there'll be an end of sin and suffering. Often when God does act, throughout the Bible we read of God acting. And again, he's criticized for wiping out a whole race of people at times. And people think how horrible that is, but people don't read the entire story. They don't see how 
God's mercy pled for hundreds of years, like with the Amalekites, etc., for hundreds of years, and people don't see how they were, these people had become so debauched, so depraved, that even through disease, through bestiality and things like this, and through child sacrifices, they were beyond reform, they were beyond help. And God, in mercy to them and to those nations around them, had to destroy them. Now, these are difficult things, but again, it's, I understand that to be an act of love. And people can be horrified at the fort, but let me illustrate that again for you. You know when they set up dominoes, and sometimes they do all these amazing shapes, and they just go all over the place, up and down and round and round, and, and finally when they're ready, and they have the television cameras and everything ready, and then they push down the first domino, and then it begins a sequence that you see, and May only last, what took months to set up may only last seconds, but nonetheless you see that sequence falling. But think of it this way, let's think of the dominoes as being sin. A person sinning, killing, murdering, stealing, adultery, dishonesty, whatever. Corruption, injustice. And now, as he does that, of course, it impacts upon the next person or the next domino falls and then the next domino falls. Now let's say as this sequence is taking place and basically what it's revealing or illustrating is, is the suffering and pain that sin causes. Now let's say that as you're watching this sequence taking place, you reach out and you take out the next domino that's about to fall, or maybe you go down the line a little bit, half, half a dozen dominoes or so, and you take one out. What have you done? When it reaches the one that you took out, it stops. It stops. And the tens of thousands of other dominoes that would have fallen remain standing because you stopped it. And that's what God does when he acts. Mm. He acts to save life and to protect life, to protect innocence and protect children, to give them hope. And then he gets criticized for that. He gets criticized for permitting suffering to, to continue because he wants to save your soul. And then he gets criticized when he does take life again to save and protect others. But when you study these things openly and honestly, you can see that a loving God, everything he does is for our good. And the cross, of course, is the ultimate. Yeah. When God does destroy, that's not without prior warning and no, repeated invitations absolutely. back to him. Like, yeah. I mean, if you think about Jonah going to Nineveh, and then what happened? They yeah, repented. Exactly. Oh, and beautiful. he didn't destroy them. Beautiful illustration. And Jesus tells us in the Gospels that, Matthew chapter 12, in fact, he tells us that there'll be men, men of Nineveh will stand up and condemn that generation, which he's talking about is the Jews. And when he says he'll stand in the judgment, if you go to the the first psalm and the fifth psalm from memory, you will see that the standard of judgment means to be saved. It means to be saved. There'll be men in Nineveh who'll be in heaven, the Lord tells us, because they repented of Jonah's teachings. Isn't that wonderful? They were doomed for destruction. Instead, they found salvation. Mm. Wonderful, loving God. So much is in our hands, you know, in our, is it yeah. within our control. Yes. And so by exploring these difficult questions, we can actually come to know God better understand his actions better and know that they're for our good and help God. Help him in a sense by being faithful, being obedient, and you're one less soldier on the side of, of the enemy. And you become a blessing instead of a curse to others. You become honest at work, honest in the home, faithful in the church, and your blessing will, will, will impact and touch many, many others. What a beautiful thing. And it's never going to happen for everyone, but imagine if it did. In fact, I can illustrate that also. Again, it's only hypothetical, but nonetheless, the, the lesson from it is invaluable. You know, 
the Ten Commandments is really the very basis of the, of, of the legal system of practically any nation. Of course, inscribed by the hand of the Creator. But the point I want to bring out is to steal is a civil offence. It's also God's moral law. And same is same with, of course, murder, etc. And, and perjury, lying, of course, is, is an offence. But what I'm getting at is, you take, let's take, for example, a city, and in this city you have its citizens, you have a police department, you have a prison system, you have magistrates and the courts, you have hospitals, nursing homes, all things that are part of a city today, which, which in itself is an indictment that a city has to have prisons and courts and police. But nonetheless, that's a reality. And now let's say in that city, the next day, every citizen... Even the, young, the younger children, the youth, they decided to not sin anymore. The next day, the children decided they're going to be respectful to their parents. They're going to obey their parents. They're going to honor their parents. The judge decided, I'm talking about the corrupt judge, but he was going to be faithful and honest in his, in his judgments. The criminal decided he would not steal anymore or be violent anymore. The drunkard decided he would not drink and be irresponsible anymore. The adulterer decided he'd be faithful to his wife. I don't care what the sin is or what the vice is. Everyone decided the next day that they would not do that. What would happen overnight to that city? I mean overnight, without God's intervention, with nothing to do with God. People just decided, they woke up and they decided, I'm not going to do this anymore. Overnight you have no more lying, no more injustice, no more stealing, no more murders, no more violence, no more disrespect. I mean, you name it, whatever it is, it's all gone. You don't need a police force. You don't need a court system. You don't need a prison. It all disappeared overnight. Why? Because God acted. No, God did nothing. People start, just made a decision to live honestly. And of course, God is involved in that of because God is. empowers the ability yeah. to... Yeah. But what I'm showing is that overnight there is no more suffering and pain in that city. Mm. Overnight, because people now decided to to be faithful, to be honest, to love their fellow man. Yeah. So rather than seeing someone suffering on the street, they'll be there to help well, them. Well, again, this was I was going to go further with it because the Ten Commandments are not just about thou shalt not do this and shalt not do that. The Bible says that love is the fulfilling of the law, and to love your neighbour as thyself is the very law of heaven. And therefore, not only would they not steal or lie or be violent, or etc., commit adultery, etc. Not only would they not be doing those things, but like you just said, if they saw someone in need, they wouldn't just keep going past. There'd be no more nursing homes. Children would care for their parents, or others would take them in. And so an entire city is transformed overnight simply because people decided to start obeying God. And, how it, and that's what heaven's going to be, incidentally. No more tears, no more suffering, no more death, because God, God's people there are there because they love him and they kept his law. Mm. Now, there would obviously still be suffering from things that had happened in the past. So, you well, know, yeah, consequences well, no, say- well, Pain and death is, is a lot of everyone's life in this world, yes. Yeah, like we get sick or- Of course. Things happen that aren't in our control. That's certainly true. But let's not forget a lot of the, even the physical suffering in this world is caused by drug medication and corruption in the very medical world as well. When we become morally- conscientiously honest with God in every aspect of our lives, we will not be part of anything that in any way harms others. But God has given us other remedies that help others. And so all these things would be alleviated. The, the fact that you will die, of course, that's, that's a lot of our life in this world, but we have a better life to look forward to. 
But just with that illustration, you can see how the moment we change how we want to live, we can impact for good. And we don't need to ask why does God allow these things to continue because they don't continue because it's in our hands. Sin is the cause of these things and not God. And by obeying him, we can put to a great degree to an end to these things. And not only that, Epistle of Peter tells us that we can hasten, looking for and hastening the second coming of our Lord. Ultimately, the only one that can put an end to all suffering and death is God. And that takes place when Christ returns. And for Christ to return, it depends on his, not dependent on his church, but his church has a part to play with that, like we saw earlier in, in Matthew 24, 14. And the gospel of this kingdom shall be preached unto all the world for a witness, and then the end shall come. So the people need to be told of the gospel, the love of God. Another good verse is Acts 3.21. It's speaking about Jesus, and it says, Whom heaven must receive. In other words, Jesus is in heaven. For how long? It says, Until the restitution of all things, spoken by the mouth of his holy prophets, since the world began. When the Bible says in that promise, Every truth ever spoken by the mouth of God's holy prophets since the beginning of the world is restored, and that takes place by the work of the church, then the Lord will return. So we have a part to play in helping our fellow man and also in hastening the Lord's coming so he can put an end to all this tragedy and woe. Mm, by standing for the truth. By standing for the truth, yeah. Absolutely. And living, of course, standing for and living for the truth. I've seen other arguments used. Even a minister once said to me, and we were discussing a theological difference, and he said to me, Bill, I've left all this part, this side of the gospel alone, there's doctrinal differences, etc. He said, I'm working at the ground roots of the gospel. He was working for a charity arm of the church in helping the poor and suffering and the needy. Of course, that's a good thing. Who would criticize that? But I put it to him, as good as that is, I asked him, can you put an end? to the suffering and the needy, the homeless and the poor and the starving? Can any charity arm, can the Red Cross, salvation, can anyone else put an end to it? No, in fact, it gets worse. It gets worse, not better. I, and, but the point I, want, I asked him was, who can put an end to it? And of course, he knew the answer. Jesus puts an end to it. You see, so as we cannot excuse our responsibilities by saying, oh, we're doing good to others in need. That's a good thing, but you recognize yourself, the only one who's going to put an end to it is Jesus. And Jesus cannot return until the truth of all, all the truth spoke by his holy prophets since the world began is restored, until the gospel of this kingdom is preached unto all the world for a witness. And so let's not leave one undone. Let's not do one to leave the other one undone. Let's be faithful to God, faithful to his word, and uphold his truth, and live for our fellow man. And we hasten the Lord's coming, and he will put an end to sin and suffering and death. And there will be no more tears, sorrow, crying, etc., Mm. And no one need to ask anymore why does a loving God permit suffering and death to continue? Yeah. Look at Ecclesiastes, for example, chapter 12. I want to just illustrate the incredible wisdom of God. What we've been discussing, in brief nonetheless, but I wonder, we've been talking about how if people started keeping God's commandments or keeping his laws, what a difference it would make. Here you have Solomon, an aged Solomon, and he wants to sum up all the wisdom. You know, he talked about so much wisdom being vanity, etc., throughout the book. But at the end, he wants to sum up everything. And if you were to read one verse in all the Bible, one verse, if you only had one verse, according to Solomon, this is the one. This one verse solves every problem in the world. God doesn't need a book. He doesn't need counsel after counsel. God gives it to you in one text. 
Every problem is resolved with this one verse. Look what Solomon says, chapter 12, and verse 13. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. And that's the illustration I gave about that city. If everyone began to fear God and keep his commandments, that's the whole duty of man, nothing else. That encapsulates everything. The moment one starts doing that, they turn from evil to good. Their life is transformed and others are transformed through their witness. That's our entire responsibility. But people want to question God, want to object with God, but they don't want to change their lives. Mm. They want him to solve every problem in the world and accuse him for every problem in the world, but they won't address their problems and how they're a part of the whole thing. But the yeah. moment, what wonderful wisdom. Everything is resolved with one text. Keep his commandments. That is, how can anyone do any harm to anybody by keeping the commandments of God? You can only do good. First to God himself, because you love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and of course to your fellow man. Amazing wisdom. And of course, you know, in Revelation twenty-two fourteen, you read how blessed are they that do his commandments, for they shall have the right to the tree of life and enter into the gates through the city. And so once again we see what Adam forfeited through his disobedience in the last days the saints will enter once again into the city and once again have access to the tree of life. Why? Because they keep his commandments. Mm. And I just want to touch on one more example of how keeping the commandments is not just those big things. You know, it, it also includes even something like not being vain. Well, that's not covered. I mean, that's the 10th commandment well, that encapsulates all vanity. Yeah. And, you know, we, we read in the Bible about the women who were adorning themselves and mm. with all this jewelry and and why why do you do that? It's because you want to look better than someone Absolutely. else. Yes, you yes. Know? And then that creates It's an entire industry. Yeah. And so people might think, oh, I'm gonna transform the world, but at the same time they want to look better than the person next to them. Yes. The gold and jewels and makeup, etc. And they want and, and which and you know dresses and they actually want the other person to to be jealous of them. Of course. Of course. So this oh. is just an example of how Deep the Coveting commandments is the go. very root of most sins. It, it's what caused sin in heaven. It's what caused Adam to, to, to sin. He coveted mm. his wife more than obeys to God. And it's what caused Eve to sin. She coveted the so-called knowledge the serpent told us she would receive. It's a uh, you know you covet the gold medal because you want to be the yeah. best. And this spirit of competition and pride and encourage you want someone to be jealous of you Certainly. or admire you. You might not think this is listed in the Ten Commandments, but it is. Oh, you so. are breaking them because you are indulging in selfishness. So when people are not selfish, they're not going to cause other people no. to stumble, cause other people to um, have impure or wrong thoughts. Exactly. Yeah. And the world will be much more peaceful. Absolutely. And this is how you can make a difference by changing your own life. Yeah, the law is spiritual. It's not just ten statements. Jesus expounded upon them when he said, If thou shalt much as look upon a woman with lust, thou hast committed adultery. And that's judging your very thoughts. In fact, we read Ecclesiastes 12, verse 13. We should read the next verse as well. Just read the final verse. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. You see, the Ten Commandments, he just, he just told us, Fear God and keep his commandments, for that is the whole duty of man. And then he tells you, God shall bring every work into judgment, every secret thing, even things that aren't known or aren't seen mm. in the physical realm, but in the thoughts. And we read about that in Revelation yeah. with the books of record. 
Absolutely. And that shows you that God does not just overlook yeah. the things that go wrong in this world. No. He records them. They are People are kept going to be kept accountable for the suffering and the pain that they have caused to others. They have to be. In fact, this would be a good study to do because the cross often is too much of a cliche, but when the Bible says that the Lord laid upon him the iniquity of us all, Isaiah 53 verse 6, that every sin was laid upon Christ. This is why everyone can be forgiven regardless. But the point is, why? Why? Because every sin impacts and hurts others. Every sin is recorded. And therefore, for Christ to save you, for Christ to bring forgiveness, those sins, every one, have to be paid for. Every one. And that's why we, we can be forgiven freely. This is wonderful. It's a wonderful message, wonderful truth. God can't just ignore or, or overlook the transgressions of his law demands death. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so we either, like you said, give an account for those or they're blotted out in the judgment by the blood of Christ. Mm. You know, even the Lord said, if you hate a brother, you're guilty of murder. So once again, we see that the Lord judges the very spiritual nature of the man or thoughts of the man, not just the outward action. I mean, a lot of us, are not guilty of murder, but have we hated others? And that's where these things lead. Always to the detriment of others, and not only to others, but to yourself. There's no joy and peace in following after selfishness. It, it, it's never gratified. If people can learn this lesson, you're never gratified. You never, you never get to the satisfied. point where you're satisfied. A man has a lovely wife. He wants someone else's wife. He has a beautiful car. He wants a better car. He wants a lovely home. He gets a better home. They're never satisfied. The girl is pretty. She wants to be prettier. It just never ends. But when you discover the true power of the gospel and the hope and the blessed assurance it gives, that's true peace and joy. Then you have that blessed assurance whether you live another day or a lifetime. Mm. But you have peace with yourself. You have a peace of conscience. And, and it gives you health and vitality apart from everything else. And people see it. And yet we want to shun that for the things of this world that are going to perish and vanish away. It's something that has to be experienced to, to be understood, you know, taste and see, but the Lord is good. And mm, What a beautiful verse to finish with. Mm. Taste and see. Just going back to that question I mentioned earlier, well, if God foresaw that sin would exist and all this suffering would result, then why didn't he just prevent it from happening altogether? Why did he go through with creating Satan when he knew what would become of it? Well, God didn't create Satan. He created a perfect holy angel named Lucifer. He was at his right hand, the light bearer, who of course became Satan. Now this is called the mystery of iniquity. This is something that we cannot expound upon. It's a mystery. Mm. You have a perfect heaven and a perfect being. And sin has never existed no. before. And so, like I said, it's a mystery. But we can discuss the impact about that which is what we've been doing actually, actually in, this, in this study. Your question was, why did he allow it? And this is a good question, for example. God did foresee it. Of course he did. Remember in, in an earlier study, might have been our very first, Genesis 3.15, that was our first study, wasn't it? Mm. And we saw Romans 16.25 from memory. We saw that the plan of salvation was kept secret since the world began, the mystery of the plan of salvation. In other words, God's plan of salvation was in place before sin existed. The Bible tells us it's very clear about that. God foresaw this and had a plan in place. 
Jesus is called the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. Of course, it didn't need to go into action until there was sin, but nonetheless, the plan of salvation was there. Why then, if God foresaw these things, and he saw that it would begin with Lucifer, why did he not then not create him? For example, if we're doing an equation upon a blackboard, and it's wrong, or we're writing something and it's wrong, all, all we simply do is rub, rub it out and redo it. God can do that, but he didn't. He created this perfect holy angel, but he saw that one day iniquity would be found in him, like it says in Ezekiel. Mm, and he saw the future of He those. saw it all, the whole downward spiral of, of suffering and death. He saw it all. The rebellion in heaven, the death of his son, the suffering that he himself would have to endure. And then the loss of part of the angels. Mm. And yet he still created Lucifer. And take it one step further. He creates Adam from the dust of the earth. And although he gives him a perfect world and a perfect environment, a perfect garden, once again he sees what Adam will do. And he sees the degradation and suffering that Adam's posterity will have to go through and are still going through today. And again he sees, of course, the cross. Yet he still creates Adam. Now what I'm going to share is simply my view, and it doesn't mean it's right, of course. But my question is, God did not have to create Lucifer or Adam. He could have done it different, but he still did. And that leads me to the understanding that this had to take place. Because you see, when you understand the cause to effect principle, the reason we don't do certain things is because we learn the problems that they caused us, whether physically or in different ways. And so we learn that this isn't the right path, it's not the right decision, I'm not going to do this, obviously. It's called cause to effect. In Nahum 1.9, that minor prophet in the book in the Old Testament, he says, very important text, it's a promise of God, it says, iniquity shall not arise a second time. So although these things have happened, God has promised us they will never happen again, never. We can be assured of that because the same all-knowing God who foresaw all these things also foresees the eternity future. And another passage is in Revelation 21, verse 4. Could you read that one, Laura? And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. So at least twice we're told in the scripture, we're promised there'll be no more death, no more crying, no more sorrow. And why? Because there shall be no more iniquity. Iniquity will not arise a second time. It rise with Lucifer, but it'll never rise again. It rise with Adam, but it'll never rise again. We can look forward to that. We believe it, and we're promised that. Could it be, not that God ordained it, don't get me wrong, but could it be that God did not rub out Lucifer when he made him, although he foresaw all this because? It had to be our lesson book. Could it be that this had to happen in order for it to never happen again? What I mean by that is, Lucifer was created with a free will, and so was Adam, and so are we. Now when angels and and human beings have a free will, it means what it says. It means that they can choose to obey God or disobey. And of course, they chose to disobey. And this is the result of it. This world of suffering and death and pain is the result of it. Now, as we look back, as that verse in Revelation 21.4 says, all those former things have passed away and there is no more death, no more pain, no more suffering. It's because we look back upon what it's caused and we're still free moral agents in heaven for eternity. 
we still have a free will. The risk is still there, but you can be assured it will never happen again because no one will even entertain a thought for a moment no. to question God, to question his wisdom, to question his law. They've, they've seen the results no, of seen that. The result, they've experienced it. The unfallen worlds have seen it. The holy angels have seen it. And they'll see that God is wisdom. They'll see that his law is for their good and for the good of the universe. Mm. And so God allowed it, not that he ordained it to happen, but he allowed it to happen. He could have rubbed it out, but sooner or later, some premoral agent is going to question God's law, is going to question his ways, think they can do better, and it's going to take place. And so that's the only answer I can perceive, that it had to happen in order for it to never happen again. And even as we continually say in these studies, God brings good out of the worst situations, and this is the worst situation of all, the rising of iniquity, and even out of that, the the wisdom of God is all good. He could see forward, past the cross, past all the death and destruction and sorrow and pain and suffering. He sees right way past all that to a world where all those things have passed and never again. And the only reminder are the wounds in Christ's hands, the signs of the cross. That's the only reminder of this past. And no one will ever entertain. Not only that would be good enough. That would be good enough that everyone's learned that lesson, but they will love God with all their heart, soul, and mind. They will see that His ways are true and just, and they will love Christ because it's because of Him that they are there, and they will love the angels with the part that they play. The love will be the fulfilling of every heartbeat, every mm. every action. Love for God, love for your fellow human being and, and other citizens of heaven. And God's original plan for Eden will, will, will be restored. Be restored a hundredfold, greater still, because the lesson book is there. God himself took responsibility for man and, and, and paid the price for man's sins and suffered and, and his son suffered and died for us that we could live for eternity. Mm. So the worst situation in the universe became the means for which God could bring the greatest blessing upon all created beings. Mm. Amen. Mm. So thank you for listening and thank God you. bless. God bless.